Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to Life Wisdom, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. Uh, I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkaran. You can find out about me at rajbalkaran.com. More importantly, I have today as my guest, Asma Darshan Laura Santoro, who's co-owner of the Dharmakshetra Yoga. Um, she's also working on a, a, a book called The Song of Your Soul. Um, that is about this very ancient work called the Bhagavad Gita, which many yes. of you will have heard about. Um, and she has a very rich and interesting relationship to, it seems, all things Indic and perhaps the overlap between all things Indic and uh, life wisdom. So, so Atma Darshan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to join you today. So um, serendipity, uh, we have a, a mutual contact, someone that I'm working with. Uh, I do some life coaching work. And in my particular case, life coaching and life wisdom are very much the same thing yes. <laughs> or incorporate much of the same strategies and mindsets. Um, and often in the case of my particular um, clientele, those who seek me out or need me most, they're often very much on board with uh, Indic paradigms of spirituality, religion, um, um, and such, uh, whether they're from an Indic background uh, or whether they're, they're they're Westerners. So, one such client is a good uh, associate of yours. Has worked with yours, I believe. Worked with you, I believe, and she sort of put you on my radar. And I thought, you know what, you'd be an interesting interviewee. So here we are. I hope to fulfill all that. <laughs> oh sure, why not? Okay, there's there's so many pieces. Okay. Mm-hmm. You said something right before I hit record. I usually, uh, for those of you listening, I'll, I'll, I'll chat with my guests a couple of minutes before we get on just to just to convey to them that I'm not nearly as scary as I might appear. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but right before I hit record, she's Atmanarshan says to me, this is going to be fun. It reminds me of my my yoga radio show. I'm like, wait, wait, wait. I want to hear this. We've got to talk about this on the air. So what are you talking about here? <laughs> Well, when I was back in college, um, there was a campus radio station, and I got some training on how to host and program. And when I started getting into yoga, I thought, wouldn't it be fun to do a yoga radio show? And this was about the time when various Kirtan CDs were coming out and chanting CDs. And also, Cleveland has a surprisingly rich yoga tradition. We would have swamis traveling through. And I'd say, would you like to be on the radio? And they'd say, okay. So we would have talk shows, we'd play music, we'd discuss yoga concepts. And I think it was just a wonderful way to introduce people to this culture, this view of the world. You know, one of my podcast guests, uh, I primarily host Indian religions, but but the podcasts are all cross-posted. So who knows where anything ends up? But one of the previous guests, um, Dr. Amir Hussain, he's at uh, Loyola Marymount University. He used to be the editor of the Journal of the American Academy of Religion, but he said something very fascinating right before we (laughs) we started recording, or right after, actually. He said, you know, podcasts are currently what radio used to be. So it's interesting. I mean, this must have been a few years ago that you were doing this radio show, right? You're just out of college, right? (laughs) (laughs) When I started doing the radio show, we were still cutting and splicing reel-to-reel tape to edit interviews. Wow. And so this is sort of a sort of a half or a slight generation later. This is a different, you know, this is a different paradigm where where 
podcasts are radio and 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 similar as you interviewing swamis i interview scholars and seekers and swamis uh, um, uh, um, folks of all stripes who may have something to say about this thing called like wisdom so i'm glad you're really on board with the, with the forum and the exchange how did you get I mean, there must be a story behind a story behind a story, but how did you end up writing a book on the Bhagavad Gita? What's up with that? <laughs> well, ever since I was young, I was interested in stories from other cultures. And before coming to yoga, I actually used to take and teach martial arts. I have a published martial art book from a few decades ago. Uh, but when I first came to the Gita, it was through a yoga teacher training program. And I have to admit, the first time I read it, I was not impressed. I thought, what does this have to do with my life? Fortunately, I took a more advanced training. And in that training, the person who taught the Gita also knew a lot about its source, the Mahabharata, and started telling stories from it. And I started to grasp, this is something that could really apply to my life, even though it's separated from me by centuries and by philosophies. And what really did it for me is um, I was teaching about the Gita in a teacher training program. And my mother, who was diagnosed with leukemia, came out of remission and started actively dying. And in that setting, the wisdom of the Gita really started coming to life for me. I found a lot of comfort in it. I found a lot of ways to support myself and hopefully my mother through the dying process. And when I started talking about and teaching from that perspective, several other students and Westerners said, wow, this has really helped me too. It helps me in my job. It helps me face life more fully. It helps me face love more fully. And from there, people became more interested in not just a, like a cursory examination, but really diving deep. And I started an annual retreat and it was, uh, when I started it, I said, it will be 20 years of retreat. We'll do a chapter of the Gita every year and an introduction and a wrap up. And when I started doing that, people were interested in the Gita and they wanted to hear me chant it and they wanted to chant it, but they were very shy about trying the Sanskrit. So what I started doing is trying to do a, an original translation that put the English version into the same meter as the original Sanskrit so that they could chant along, but in English and not be as shy. And I tried that the first year with just a few verses and people loved it. So then the next year I tried to do the whole chapter and people loved it. And so um, I finally decided to do the whole book. So did you actually go through 20 seasons of retreats or 18, I should say, in the case of the Bhagavad Gita, there are 18 chapters. Right. Well, we will be doing 20 because the first year was an introduction for people who had no idea about the setting. So we talked about the characters and the whole history, um, but we are currently, we just got done with year 11. So we're through chapter 10 and we'll be doing the next retreat. We try to do it every Memorial Day weekend. So that will be coming up. Certainly a memorable Memorial Day weekend uh, yes. for, for, for those of, of certain stripes. Um, <laughs> well, can you say something about this 
what I think of as a, a, a crock pot versus a wok, the slow cook, slow burn. Can you say something about looking at a text over time, particularly the Gita? Um, was that necessary? Was that important? Uh, was, was, that, was that impactful or a factor in terms of what you came up with? Definitely. Uh, one of the things I first noticed when studying the Gita is that each time I read it, it was different. And I realized it wasn't the Gita that was different. It was me. And every time I came to it, something different spoke. So that to me started to underscore the importance of revisiting it and peeling away the layers. Um, and I lost my train of thought there, but I'm sure it'll come back if it's meant to. One of the things I love about the Gita is, and the Mahabharata is Krishna says, I am the source of memory, but also forgetfulness. So if I've forgotten it, it must be important. And that's one of the big lessons I got from the Gita is, oh, and now I remember, is this way of applying it to my life in a very compassionate way. And one of the things I got from the slow burn is when I was writing the book, I made a commitment that I would live each verse of the Gita as best I could for at least a day. So I spent years trying to live it as well. And I don't think I could have written the book or approached a translation authentically without that time. And it was well worth it. Living a verse of the Gita a day, what does that look like? Can you give us an example? Yes, I'd love to. What I would do when I started is there were so many different translations and everybody seemed to say something different. So I would look at a variety and I'd look at the original Sanskrit and I'd try to pull some kind of nebulous idea together and then by applying it in my life, come to a concrete understanding and presentation that spoke to me as a modern Westerner. So for example, uh, the first verse of chapter seven, under my complete protection, practicing, with, practicing yoga with your mind, intent on me, O oh child, hear how to know me fully without doubt. Um, when I started practicing that, the first line, under my complete protection, I took a day and just imagined what it must be like to really feel like you're under the complete protection of a divine being who is personally invested in you. And that for me was actually life-changing, just to actively cultivate that. And I noticed it not only changed me, but other people started acting differently toward me as well. And that further encouraged me to study the different verses. Would you say the content of the Bhagavad Gita or, or uh, your findings thereof, would you say this is particularly Indic and for seekers of a certain stripe? Or would you say that it is, it is broader than that? My personal experience is that it's broader than that. I think there does have to be an open-mindedness on the part of the seeker. But the people that have started studying, especially um, with me, are people from various walks of life. They might be inclined toward yoga, but actually when I was doing this book, I got beta readers. And one was a college student who had never heard of the Gita before. And as she did the beta reading, the editing, because I specifically wanted the input of somebody younger and who didn't do yoga to see if this appealed to them. She said that 
she found the wisdom to be really helpful even for her. And she asked, why don't they teach this in school? Why have I never heard of this before? So that's also inspiring me that it comes from, yes, a particular culture and a particular tradition and a particular depth of wisdom, but it's applicable still to people today and to people, I think, all over the world who really need its wisdom. Why is your organization called Dharma Kshetra Yoga? What does that mean? What's that all about? So the first line of the Bhagavad Gita contains that word and also the word Kurukshetra. And when I was living that verse, I came to find for myself that the meaning of yoga is kind of encapsulated in those first two words. There's the field of the Kurus, the historical family that's having the civil war, the field of old familial patterns and habits, but then it's also named as the field of dharma, of destiny. And what those two words mean for me is that in yoga, every moment you have the choice, you can revert back to the old habits, the past, the conflicts, or you can step forward and embrace your destiny. Yoga is the act of making that choice conscious and really present in as many moments as you can access it. So that's why we chose the name. My business partner and I, she approved it, but the idea of stepping forward and embracing destiny. And that's why um, we do use the, the kind of redirect welcomingdestiny.com because for Westerners, that's often a lot easier to remember. Well, I, I often ask somewhat naive questions on the podcast to, <laughs> to elicit responses, but, but yes. Dharma Kshetra is the, 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 for those of you uh, who know the Gita, or even those of you who don't, <laughs> Dharma Kshetra is the, it's the very first, those are the very first words of the Bhagavad Gita, and in all things Indic and probably beyond, the first and the last are important, very important how you you disembark from a journey and it's interesting that the first word of course is dharma uh, dharma, yes. conduct righteousness virtue what yes. have you dharma kshetre kuru kshetre samaveta yutsavaha mm-hmm. it's just just this sort of epic beginning pun intended um on the field of dharma on the field of kuru so your um platform you're teaching more than postures aren't you definitely And I think that's one of the things that sets us apart and appeals to a certain group. Um, We have people that come for postures, but we also have people that come for the deeper practices, meditation, mudra, but the philosophy behind it as well. What is the meaning behind it? What's the reason? And also, what's a way that I can apply yoga to my life? I can't always be in a meeting or be having an argument with my spouse and then go into a yoga posture or start a pranayama. That doesn't work, but I can remember back to what I've learned about the Gita. I can remember back to what I've learned from the sutras, from the Upanishads, and use those directions in the moment to help make my life better and to help impact the world more positively. I was musing in my my inner life a moment ago as you were speaking about gee what yoga postures would work in in an altercation with, with a spouse certainly shavasana or or yes. or, or tadasana one or the other <laughs> would definitely make a statement um and maybe even balasana but that's a whole different story. there you go <laughs> so 
so yes um uh, so the, uh, there's so many directions i'd like to take this into i think the most obvious one for listeners are along the lines of this hey you do yoga postures and you also do uh indian philosophy indian spirituality mm-hmm. indian wisdom um is that necessary for people who do postures I think that's one of the great debates right now, especially in Mm -hmm. the West. Is it necessary? I've taught classes where people come and they, they do say, just give me the postures, just give me the stretching. I think in a way that's a gateway. Um, Yoga and one of the definitions in the Gita is that yoga is the relief of suffering. So perhaps those people are just suffering from overwhelm in life and their bodies are locked up and causing them problems. And that's all they need. And that's really all they can handle because of the stresses of life. I think that those who can go beyond will get a much deeper understanding that really helps any kind of yogic pursuits or life pursuits to blossom. Um, One of my teachers in India said that yoga is really like a bird and you have to have the two wings to fly. You do need to have practice, but you also need to have some theory and whichever you come to first is fine, but you need the other for your yoga to really take off. And I try to embrace that. Yeah. It's such an interesting issue that um, many of my own students are heavily involved in the yoga world, yoga mm-hmm. practitioners, yoga teachers, for some reason, um, a, a very high percentage of my students are teachers mm. uh, without any sort of uh, targeting or it just happens to be that way. It's been that way for years and many of them are involved in, in the yoga and what I think of as the yoga enrichment world. And I think for some yoga's postures and that's what they're looking for. And it, it behooves them to find instructors for whom the postures and who work mm-hmm. on the anamaya kosha or uh, shall I say the physical body mm-hmm. for those who are interested in that and interested in the benefits there. And perhaps, I mean, we can feel free to agree to disagree. I mean, this is about exchanging ideas, but perhaps mm-hmm. there are certain yoga teachers who are, who do what yoga is thought of in the West, a physical activity that brings um, uh, mindfulness as well as health benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, and perhaps there are those, there are other yoga teachers who are steeped in uh, Indic lore, thought, practice, and to varying degrees. And, and there, there are others who want that enrichment. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, what, do you, what do you think about that? I think it's absolutely true that there's a wide variety. Um, my experience is as people start to learn more and trust more in what yoga can do for them, then there is the tendency to want to dig deeper. Um, I've been very fortunate in my classes. I've had people who are Orthodox Jews, who are Catholic nuns, who are agnostic, who practice a wide variety of approaches to spirituality. And one of the things I hope is that each one of them takes away a little something and comes to understand themselves a different culture, perhaps the world better. And I really get my inspiration from Krishna and the Gita. I mean, Arjun has all these questions and Krishna is a master to me. He's the model, the epitome of a yoga teacher or yoga therapist in that he's always able to meet Arjun just where he is 
and then help him go deeper. And for me, that's one of my real aspirations when working with yoga is to help meet people where they are and to show them how they can go deeper if they so desire. This is a, a sort of thread in my own work that's recently resurfaced a great deal, but about 12 years ago, perhaps 2010, this 2010 to about 2012 ish. Mm-hmm. I was teaching actively in the yoga community in Toronto in person, uh, in, 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 in the, uh, before the flood, so to speak, <laughs> when we could get together, <laughs> yes. when we could get together in person. Um, uh, and that was parked. And now more and more, there are students at the online school who are very heavily involved in the yoga world and they're looking for the teachings. They're not looking to me for asanas. It's not mm-hmm. something that I teach. I do have my own personal practice. Uh, they want they want the, the plus, right? And the, the extra. Yes. A metaphor that I used when I first started teaching this that still comes to mind to this day is that yoga is a tree, it's a banyan. And in some sense for it to thrive, something of the soil must be transplanted as well as the tree, something of the, depending on how deeply you want it to be rooted in your life, in your person, then the philosophy and and the methodology are are important. Just Mm -hmm. synchronistically, just without any planning, just before this call, I just sent a notice out to my school students and I believe I posted on social media as well I'm a neophyte with social media but there's a uh, an upcoming book uh, that I've produced that's called the stories behind the poses where I narrate the I render I retell I write uh, 50 traditional stories related to yoga postures and so the question is well is this for people doing postures who want enrichment is this for lover of stories is this for something in between is this there's that sort of tension of what yoga is and, and what a yogi is and, and what kind of yogi would be interested in these stories and, and how would they make use of them? So mm-hmm. the, the, the line you walk is definitely something that I have some familiarity with. Of course, I haven't walked a mile in your shoes. Um, what I'd like to understand is, um, okay, how about this? You have this lovely name, Atma Darshan. What mm-hmm. does it mean? And how did you receive this thing, if I may ask? Oh, yes, definitely. So I've been to India several times, um, mostly in the northern area. And one of the first reasons I went was to meet a specific teacher there. I was taken by my teacher here in Cleveland. And I was very much interested in the depths of yoga, stayed at an ashram for a while, did karma yoga. Um, And after some time of practicing, I was invited to take diksha or initiation. And the first time I met with this guru in person, I remember him looking not at me, but through me. And he said, your name is Atma Darshan. And then he told me what he intended by the meaning, the vision of the true self. And later he had a, a talk for different initiates. And he said, in general, he said, you know, the name that you've gotten is meant to help guide you in your practice, that this is a core vibration of you that you're meant to access through your yoga teaching. And I really took to that because 
um, growing up, for me, there was a bit of confusion, I could say, of identity. Um, my parents separated when I was early. I was actually adopted later. Uh, I changed my name back from my adoptive name to one that more closely reflected my familial heritage. And so there has been a quest in a way for who am I? And when I got this name, Atma Darshan, really resonated with me because it's the idea of the vision of the true self, Atma, the true self and Darshana, the vision of, but with a special connotation, um, as I've encountered the word Darshan, it means the vision of the self that's not dead and not fixed and not static, but it's living and it looks back at you. And through this, I was really inspired to take my studies of yoga even deeper and get different levels of diksha and really explore that culture. Because what I hope to do is, I know I'm coming at this from a Western view, but to be as respectful of the cultures I can, because it's magnificent. India, I had one friend who was a world traveler. The first time I went to India say to me, look, there's the rest of the world and then there's India. And when I went there, I truly understood this and I wish to honor that unique wisdom as best I can myself while still being true to who I am in the culture I was born in, the culture I was raised in. What do you feel are some of the features of that, uh, that particular Indic wisdom, as you, as you call it, or, 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 or uh, what makes that space, do you feel, so different from the rest of the world in the language of your traveling friend? Mm-hmm. One of the things that really struck me right off the bat was the traffic. And there's no way to even capture that in movies. If you've ever seen a movie about India, you really have to be there. <laughs> Because for me as a Westerner and being exposed to Western culture and growing up here in North America, the idea was that order and civilization relies on organization. You know, for example, modern cities laid out in a grid pattern, um, that there's structure, that there's a kind of predictability, if you will. And then what the traffic in India represented to me is that you can have life, you can have security and stability in an evolving flow that you don't have to try to master chaos. You can learn how to go with it and learn how it's beautiful and how its spontaneity creates something different. And I have to tell you that even though the traffic was, at first I was terrified, But what I noticed is that the drivers pay attention. And if there's no need for traffic lights or anything like that, it's because everybody's paying it. People are driving when they're driving. And that to me is indicative perhaps of something of the culture too, is when you're doing something, you're doing something. Whereas here in America, when I drive, listening to the radio, (laughs) listening, doing something, having a conversation. And so I think that really can teach you a lot about how, ingrained your worldview is, you don't even realize how ingrained it is, and then how refreshing and life-altering it can be to open up and to see the value, the benefit of having a different perspective. At first, I chuckled to myself when you mentioned the traffic, (laughs) because for a number of reasons, um, one, 
um, um, it is quite different. And two, I had the same observation <laughs> eons ago that it's, it is um, indicative of something greater. So much as much as uh, uh, how the ancients might watch the flight of birds to discern things, oh. <laughs> you watch watch the traffic in India, and you discern certain things. And one thing that's palpable is that there is an organic, participatory, communal relationship to driving. Mm-hmm. Yes. Very, very different. You're not responding only to lines and lanes and lights. You're responding to the instincts mm-hmm. of the rest of the herd. And it's, it's um, as you say, it's not chaos. It's organic order. Yes. It's very different from, it, it's very different. And, and perhaps there's more than the traffic that makes India unique. <laughs> oh, there's definitely more. That was just as soon as I stepped out of the airport, that was the thing that made the quick impact, but yes, India is so rich. Let me ask you this. You mentioned in passing that there are uh, Orthodox Jews and, and, and uh, the religious of various types mm-hmm. who are taken with um, the courses you offer and the, the teachings, um, the teachings therein. Would you say that such people choose between a different religion and quote unquote Hinduism or Indian religion? Or would you say there's something else going on there or is, is there a competition, not a competition, but is there a tension there? Is it, what does that look like in your studentship? Well, what I've noticed, at least in the group I've been fortunate enough to teach, is there comes to be kind of an idea of mutual respect and exploration and perhaps a recognition that there's a, a truth, a deeper truth that's embedded within different approaches. And hopefully what we can do is much like seeing the traffic differently is learn how to see other people's approaches differently and with respect while still honoring the path that feels true to us. Is there a tension among students or among colleagues with this idea of quote unquote Westerners practicing yoga, teaching yoga? Clearly it's, it, it's a bit of a hot button issue in the world at large, but on my podcast, I speak to all folks and have respectful conversations all around. And I'm curious to know your perspective on that. Mm. Well, I do remember one time I was in India and the teacher from Cleveland who'd led our group was sitting with a, another group of teachers from all over the world and related an incident that she had where one of the teachers from another country leaned over and patted her on the knee and said, you Americans are really going to screw yoga up. (laughs) So there is a tension. And I think there can be tension from students as well. But in my experience, if I can examine that tension within myself and address it, then something happens that I'm able to also address it satisfactorily for the students, or they learn how to address it for themselves, if that makes any sense. So what are, what would you say, are there particular um, rules, guidelines, boundaries, principles, are there things that you would take on, you wouldn't take on? There may well be other people in your shoes or, 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 
those learning from people in your shoes, it might be interesting to hear about your internal process about this. Can you clarify just a little bit more? Yeah, when, when you're navigating this idea of um, um, whether Westerners should do yoga or not, what's appropriate, what's not appropriate, are there boundaries, is there a line? You know, for you, what works for you when you think about this or when you enact this? Mm. For me, something that greatly informs this is something that the guru in India who gave me my name said once, well, actually more than once, I heard him speak about this. He said that for him, yoga is a universal culture that's expressed differently in different places. For example, he'd traveled to Central and South America. And he said that when he saw the statues and the artwork, it just spoke to him of yoga. For example, the serpent coming up and putting the head on top of a statue seated in a meditation pose for him represented Kundalini. So from him, I guess I was encouraged to have an attitude that yes, what we call yoga today now is from the Indian subculture or excuse me, Indian subcontinent. And we need to honor that culture and honor how that culture formed yoga. But at the same time, there's a universal wisdom that exists all over the world and in each individual and whatever we want to call that for him, that was yoga. So for me, what really helped is taking that to heart is honoring the approaches to yoga that have been passed down because they work through centuries and through lineages, through millennia, even the Gita itself. I mean, the reason people still read it today all over the world is it's got this great wisdom. And at the same time, realizing that we can use this to access and honor this inherent wisdom within each of us that may transcend culture, time, and place. It's a lovely thought. Um, in addition to your work on yoga uh, and the Bhagavad Gita, another interest of yours is yoga um, and death. Yes. Uh, Alzheimer's uh, addictions. Tell mm -hmm. us a bit about this. So I originally went to school for psychology and biology. That's what my undergrad degree was in. And then I was fortunate to find a job as soon as I graduated in the laboratory of biological psychiatry. And when I came to yoga, um, I found a complete description of the mental processes and structures that really complemented the Western models I was taught. So I became extremely interested in yoga psychology. Um, so for example, with Alzheimer's, I was very lucky to be engaged as a private instructor for a gentleman who was experiencing Alzheimer's and whose body was also having some challenges. And I worked with him and his daughter and it was so interesting with his dementia, he could not remember practices or names. However, we worked together for enough time that even though he couldn't remember with his mind, his body remembered and his body would just, we would start the practice and he'd flow through it. And one of the things that yoga psychology posits is the mind is helped out by the brain, but it also lives in the body. 
And then that helped me with looking at other disease processes, including addiction, how addiction lives in the body and how actually the ego of the substance one is addicted to becomes part of one's own ahamkara or ego is a rough translation in English. And then with death, I mentioned my mother's journey through death. I've lost my parents. I was, I lost them both before I was 40. And then my grandparents, not long after that. And so I quickly felt like I rose to the top tier of my family. You know, I would be the next one to go. And the Katopanishad, the story of the young boy who meets with death and talks with him and death as a teacher during that time became very striking to me. And I actually, <laughs> once I read that, I, I formulated this workshop called Yoga and Death. And the first time I ran it, I didn't know if anybody would do it. So I would teach my classes and go, come to Yoga and Death. And then I'd run into other teachers' classes and go, hey, by the way, there's a Yoga and Death workshop and it's going to be great. And a bunch of people signed up and I ran it a couple more times. I think part of the fascination for me is it gives people a chance and yoga gives people a chance and the Gita gives people a chance to talk about things we don't normally talk about in polite conversation, but we want to know about. And the idea that yoga can really help us through this transition, I think that's something that's much needed, especially right now, as we're talking with the health crises, people's lives being turned upside down. It's interesting to me that, uh, for example, the 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 the, the four noble sites uh, draw from uh, Indic religion is crystallized in what we now think of as Buddhism. But mm. This is um, ascetic ideology. These noble sites are these are um, these are exactly uh, aspects of life that are very much tucked away or sanitized in the West mm. and old age. We've got homes for those right. sickness. <laughs> exactly. We've got fluorescent lighting in, in places for those right. death. Right. Um, and, and in our culture, it's very rare that one sees a corpse unless it's exactly. someone they love who's, you know, done up at the <laughs> service. And in much of the rest of the world, it's not uncommon to have seen death right. in that sense. Um, so yeah, it makes sense that it would give folks uh, an opportunity to to address such issues. Now, you mentioned earlier in the podcast that you had this day where you practiced, for example, surrender to a uh, uh, to a to a divine um, um, personage. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you also mentioned just now um, attitudes towards uh, death and dying. Could you share? Uh, a couple of other pearls of wisdom that you've gleaned from your journey with the Gita. I'm sure there are a number, there are mala or four or a thousand of pearls that you've gained. But you know, what, what comes to mind in this moment is uh, uh, in terms of pearls you wish to share? A general big pearl would be chapter eight of the Gita, because that does talk about death and dying and how to approach that process consciously. I think that's a huge benefit for all of us across cultures because many of us feel so helpless. Uh, I had a job working in a hospital, not just in psychiatry, but on an intensive care, a children's intensive care unit for a while. And the idea 
especially when people see their children suffering and dying of the helplessness. And what chapter eight gives us is a bit more empowerment with that transition. Um, but I think if I go to my favorite, or there's, there's several favorite, but my ultimate favorite verse of the Gita is the last one of chapter 10. And if you're not familiar with it, it goes, but what use is all this knowledge to you, O Arjuna? I stand sustaining the whole universe with one small fragment of myself. And when I read that, it's like, wow, Krishna is great. <laughs> He's sustaining this whole universe with one fragment of myself. But when I lived that, particular verse, what struck me is I support my whole universe, how I see the world, how I see existence with just this tiny fragment of myself. And it can depend on my mood. If I'm angry, then I'm supporting this whole universe with my anger and the universe looks one way. If I'm loving, I'm supporting it with that fragment of myself and the universe looks another way. And for me, one of the things that the Gita really gives me is this idea of choice and empowerment that however I approach the world, it's going to approach me, which I found through living the Gita. And especially that verse, if, if I can just find the part of me that I want to sustain my universe and put my attention on it, then the universe is going to change and appear in that way. The seen is a function of the seer. Yes. Supported by the perspective one takes, perhaps. Mm -hmm. And I think even that's becoming clear in the West, in modern physics. You know, we try so hard. When I worked in psychiatry, you try so hard to separate out the observer. So it's objective. All research is objective. And what we're finding out is it's impossible that simply by observing or having an idea, we are affecting the universe. So why not claim that power and choose consciously what we're supporting the world with? Where can folks connect with you or find you? Oh, I would love if people connected to me. Uh, they can find me at the website, welcomingdestiny.com. And there's a contact form there. Also, my phone number, my direct phone number is on the site. You can find me on Facebook. Atmadarshan108 is my, uh, my personal or at Welcoming Destiny. That's the business. I've also, uh, one of my favorite things is I have a YouTube channel. You can go on YouTube and search Atmadarshan108. And... There are videos, including meditations based on the Gita or Yoga Nidra or other practices, even some with some asana in it, um, to support wherever you happen to be. Instagram, you can find me as well, although I will claim like you to be a social media neophyte, <laughs> but we do post and you can message me at Madarshan 108 or Dharmakshetra Yoga. And I'll be happy to link up with you through that. Great. There are a number of avenues of yes. uh, seeking you out in your work. And of course, we will post all of those links in the podcast notes 
uh, for this conversation, but for some people who are auditory learners or who just mm -hmm. may be on the go, they want to make a mental note. It's 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 worth uh, vocalizing aloud. And as someone who has a deep connection with oral traditions, I'm sure you yes. <laughs> understand yes. that. Now, uh, at the behest of, uh, I think, a listener or a colleague or friend some time ago, um, in these podcasts, I offer something at the end for for you if you're interested yes if you're interested for a few minutes or a question mm -hmm. or two we can switch places and if there's anything that you had wanted to ask me I mean anything at all really about all things Indic or or, or mm -hmm. what we're talking about now or uh, sky's the limit hopefully nothing too personal but uh <laughs> I did open the door so is there anything you'd like to ask me before we close we can switch if you'd like I'd like that does take me back to the radio days. <laughs> and I do agree what you say, podcasts are the new radio. And it's wonderful because you can choose what to listen to anytime. But one thing that I mentioned, you know, I kind of wrestle with myself is what is the view of someone who was brought up in this culture um, toward Westerners who are trying to learn it teach it or convey it. Are you interested in my personal view? I'm very much. Yes. Well, the first thing I'd say is, is people are individuals. And I think that's important to keep in mind. I think we run into trouble when we try to represent a tradition or when we try to engage an entire tradition. I think the individual is very important, both in terms of Western concepts of selfhood, but also and perhaps more profoundly in, 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 in the divinization of the individual that we find in yogic philosophy. So in my, my personal view, I can't speak on behalf of other uh, practitioners, uh, diasporic or, or Indians or Hindus or, or anything. For me, it's hard for me to parse out for myself how much of me is East and how much of me is West, mm -hmm. because I was raised a Westerner Mm -hmm. in a Western culture with Indian genes and discovered mm -hmm. in my early 20s, I had a staggeringly ancient Indian soul. And things that I had no interest in, I found that I had an aptitude and, and, and deep passion for a little later in life. Mm -hmm. But so for me in particular, uh, fortunately or unfortunately, I'm wedded to the future and not the past. And it seems to me we need to build a globe. Mm. The, the project of our species is to build a globe on some, you know, on some, you know, lasting footing. And part of that, and I think Toronto may be a little bit ahead of much of the globe, it's sort of a multicultural Mecca, not without issues, I assure you, but certainly a staggering success in terms of different stripes living together, borrowing from each other, sharing with each other. And for me, it's a question of that individual their needs, their desires, their draw, their attitude. And for me, if a person is respectfully sampling the dishes at the um, Global Village buffet, and if a person has an aptitude for cooking and wishes to try their hand at this or that, that's very different for me than presenting oneself as the the, the, the heir to an ancient tradition from such and such and such and such and such, or being driven primarily by uh, money or power. And so I think there are various stripes. Uh, for me, it comes down to swabhava, mm. the person's innate nature, which 
should be the North Pole of their Swadharma, what they are called mm-hmm. to do. And I think both from a secular and a spiritual perspective, who are we to, to tell others, to, to argue with the calling of others? Mm. That's my personal view. Mm. That strikes me very much as chapter 18 of the Gita as well, in which Krishna's, Krishna says that by doing what we're meant to do, we are doing the highest service to the world and to others, as well as to ourselves. So I do thank think, you. <laughs> you're welcome. I, I do think certainly that, that issues of cultural appropriation, of Orientalism, of uh, colonialism, well, without question, these are issues to be addressed. But these are issues that are in the more short term of our species. Mm. The, the, the reason they need to be addressed is so that people can be free to respectfully enjoy and engage the, the world's legacy of teachings, mm-hmm. uh, India included. And so uh, I'm a little, probably a touch too idealistic. And unfortunately, I was born about 500 years ahead of my time, but that's okay. That's all right. Um, <laughs> but so that's my, my personal view. Um, and for me, it's all about respect. If there's acknowledgement and respect, what's the issue? If I wish to, if I have firm command of the English language, should I feel like a cultural appropriator? No, this is this is my innate. This is this is what I do. This is what I use. Yeah. I understand the English language may not be mine to own, or even the language of my ancestors, but I use it with respect and with skill, hopefully. Um, and that's that. I realize, of course, yeah, the analogy is flawed in terms of the experience with the West in India. It's fraught with issues that we need to confront and address. But confronting and addressing those issues won't happen unless people are free to engage the riches of Indic tradition, in my view. So I think enough of our swap for today. (laughs) We should probably close before too long. Is there anything else you wanted to say or ask briefly before we close? I just wanted to say what a genuine pleasure this has been to speak with you and dialogue with you. And again, how very appreciative I am to have met you and to be able to share this time with you. You're most welcome. You're most welcome. Until next time, keep well. For those of you listening, we've been speaking with Atma Darshan Laura Santoro, who is co-owner of Dharma Chetra Yoga. The links uh, to her yoga site, uh, along with her social media handles, will be in the podcast notes. Feel free to connect with her as you see fit. Until next time, keep listening, uh, keep thinking, um, keep contemplating life wisdom and, you know, how much of the world's traditions are ours to share in what capacity and how do we do so respectfully and in the spirit of camaraderie and appreciation. Uh, Take care.